0: Um, today we're going to talk about the book of Acts kind of as a, just sort of some global stuff, and then next week we'll start with chapter one. I thought a nice place to begin might be, uh, when you hear the word Acts or think about the book of Acts, what comes to mind? I thought we'd just make a little collage here for a minute or two. Book of Acts, what comes to mind? What? Paul. Yeah, the second half of Acts is basically the story of Paul, his ministry, his journey. So what else? What? The apostles. apostles. Yeah. It is, after all, called the Acts of the Apostles. apostles. Not all of them. Most of them are never mentioned. Spreading the word. word. Holy Spirit. Spirit, Big in the book of Acts. What else? The The early church. It's the only history of the church before the fourth century uh, and it's a first-century document, and it documents the first thirty years. So, and that makes it priceless. Okay, what else? Any favorite stories? Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. Pentecost. Pentecost. Yeah. Some people P- take that P- stuff seriously and actually do it. <laughs> We're a little skittish. That's okay. Paul gets, knocked off his horse and gets Paul gets knocked off his horse. You know what's funny about that story? there's no horse in the story <laughs> but every piece of art you've ever seen there's Paul on the ground by the horse yeah yeah actually his conversions mentioned three different times in the book of Acts which says it's pretty darned important yeah what else any favorite stories Cornelius, Cornelius. what's what's uh, stands out about that story God had to give him a dream, yeah. slap him up the side of the face a couple of times, say, so get with the program. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, story. awesome story. Yeah. Breaking free from prisons. Free from prisons. With a little help from God. the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doors open. Walls fall down. People walk free. Yeah. It's a wonderful book, and we just barely tapped it. Now, uh, some of you know the New Interpreter's Bible. This is a commentary. This is published by Abington which means it's published by the United Methodist Church. And this has sort of been the standard commentary uh, for Methodists and for many others. And it has in the opening sentence of the commentary on Luke, one of those this powerful kind of sentences. And I figured today we're just going to basically unpack this sentence. It says this. The Acts of the Apostles is one of the most exciting books in the Bible. Would you agree? Yes. Absolutely. And one of the most challenging so it has this sort of dual nature. It's, it's wonderful material. It's challenging material. But there's some stuff about it that's just very, very challenging uh, in that of all the Christian Bible. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's exciting about Acts. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the challenge. And the challenge has actually changed in the last few years because in the last 30 years, there's been a fundamental reassessing of the historical value of the book of Acts. It was pretty much dismissed. It's all theology, but that's sort of been rethought majorly. Uh, it does cover the most important period of our history, and the most important period of anything generally is when? Beginning. The beginning. How something got started, how it got its start. So the book of Acts of the Apostles is the story of the birth of the church and those first critical years. A matter of fact, about three decades. So we've got in the early chapters of Acts, we've got that period for which Acts is the only source that we have. From the year 30 when Jesus is crucified to about the year 50 where Paul starts to write his letters and we begin to get some secondary material. For that 20 years, we have Acts and we have Acts only. Um, and this is also known, if you go forward to the 60s, uh, is the apostolic age. By 64, Peter's dead, James is dead, dead, uh, Paul is dead and most, maybe, maybe John is still living, but most are gone. So we're in this period when those people who've actually known Jesus when he was alive are still players. They're still in the story and things are happening through them and they drive the story. This is, of course, the period, the book of Acts is writing about the period before the second Jewish revolt, the first Jewish revolt, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of of the temple in the year 70 AD. Uh, during this period, the Christian faith is not a separate religion. Matter of fact, it's an anachronism to even use the word Christian. Okay, The word Christian, as we use the term, does not yet exist. Now, Acts will say, at a little town called Antioch, people were called Christian for the first time, because it was something about them that made them stand out from the Jews. But Pretty much the entire first century, Christianity is a movement within Judaism. We were Jews. We were Jews for Jesus. (laughs) There's still some of those out there, okay. Matter of fact, it's interesting that that particular movement, you know, has come back in the last few decades, yeah. Uh, um, What do you call it? Completed Jews, Messianic Jews. Uh, Someday we ought to really do a field trip and just go visit one of those because we would probably recapture the kind of world that Paul was in in the early Acts. Yeah, that would be fun. Let's make that happen, yeah. I would guess they were gonna meet on a Friday night or a Saturday morning Mm -hmm. because they're gonna be Torah observant. Um, Jesus and the disciples are Torah observant Jews. If nothing else stands out about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing what's called halakha, which is basically he's interpreting Torah and how you apply Torah to your life. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. So, and, and everything he says, by the way, totally fits within first century Judaism of the day. Um, this continues to be true for Jesus and the disciples. Even when non Jews become believers in Jesus, that faith is being lived out in the period of Acts within the environment of a Jewish synagogue and the context of a Jewish community. Uh, there won't be separate Gentile uh, communities until, until later. Uh, this is true for the entire period we're going to cover. We're going to spend about 12, 13 weeks on Acts, and we're going to cover probably about the first half. So we're going to walk it very carefully up till uh, Paul starts what's, c- what's called his uh, uh, the Aegean uh, mission, which is basically... Journeys 2 and 3, where he's sort of based either in Ephesus or where? Greece? Greece. Corinth? Basically, he is, he doesn't, he's not traveling all the time. He's two and a half years in one place and three years in the other. Out of seven years, he spends basically six located in one of those two towns. So we'll cover that. Um, this whole business about Christianity being a movement within Judaism is central to the book of Acts. okay. Uh, we're going to start the book of Acts with the early disciples going into the temple three times a day to pray. So where are Peter and John? Where are they doing their miracles? Where are they doing their tinshi? They're in the temple. The last scene in Acts is Paul arrives in Rome and is greeted by Christians? No. There are Christians there. We know there are Christians there. But in Luke's mind, he's greeted by the Jewish community. And Paul talks about my brothers and us and we and our and all of his languages is very inclusive. We'll look at one of Paul's statements in just a second. Uh, So this is central to the narration of of not only the, the church before part. We think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And clearly that's Paul's understanding. God called him. But what God was it called him? It was the Jewish God of the Jewish scriptures of the Jewish nation who calls him in fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, Isaiah, to proclaim this message beyond. And in Paul's language in Romans, Israel, God's people, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles are part of Israel. They're part of God's because Israel means God's people and God's people are Jews and Gentiles. So Paul can say in Galatians, in Christ, there is no slave, nor free, no male or female, no. Jew. Or a Gentile, because they're all one. Uh, even near the end of Paul's life, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul twice identifies. This is, the, you know, when he takes the offering that the Gentiles give, he wants to, you know, the. Uh, He wants to go one last time to Jerusalem and present the gift to the altar in Jerusalem as a sign that the Gentiles are, in fact, faithful to their calling, and he's arrested. Paul identifies himself in that story twice, not as a Christian. He identifies himself as a Jew. Even when we go to the very final scene in the book of Acts, again, as he greets greets the uh, Jewish community, not the Christian community, He identifies himself as a Jew. He talks about my people, uh, our ancestors, my nation. So within the book of Acts, Paul thinks of himself as a Jew. Segway, Paul's letters. Is that also true? Absolutely. So you have in places like Corinthians where Jesus, uh, where Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. In another place, he'll say, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, fully Torah observant. And this is Paul talking, kind of explaining who he is. So yes, that, that's very consistent. At no pa- point in his life, this is actually one of the, uh, the areas that uh, there's been some recent scholarship on. Uh, a book that came out a few years ago, uh, has a kind of funky title It says, Paul was not a Christian. (laughs) And everybody goes, (gasps) (laughs) but you know the point, Paul was a Jew. And the term Christian is anachronistic, okay, and he understood himself in that way. Now, one of the primary concerns of the book of Acts, and we're going to see this over and over from chapter one all the way to the end, is the Jewish legacy of the church. Now, Luke is writing at a very particular time in history where this has become a major issue. Our Jewish roots have become a major issue. He he wants to stress the Jewish legacy of the Christian faith because there's a bunch of people out there who are not and who, matter of fact, want to divorce Christianity from its Jewish roots. Now, later in the second century, we're going to get people like Marcion, who creates the first Christian Bible, throws out the Old Testament, uses only the gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul, but removes any references to the Old Testament from Luke and from the letters of Paul. Because he thinks that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of Jesus. Later, we have another group that takes this a little further called the Gnostics. But even at the time that Luke is writing, this is already an issue. The Christian faith is is beginning to spread beyond its Jewish roots into the larger Gentile community. And by the way, he happens to be writing at a particular time in history when being Jewish has suddenly become very, very unpopular in the Roman Empire. Can you guess why? The revolt, 67 to 73, first of three revolts. By the early 2nd century after the Bar Kokhba Revolt, I mean, the word Jew has a very, very bitter taste. It'd be like saying Al-Qaeda. You know, people you know have died at the hands of those radicals. So Luke is writing about the year 80, 85 AD, somewhere in there. Uh, This is just a very few years after the Jewish revolt. I mean, Jerusalem falls in the year 70, but Masada does not fall into the year 73 AD. So our good soldier boys are dying in Palestine because of this revolt. And it's, it's, it's a major issue in the empire. Um, and we begin to have, and this is this, we know this to a variety of authors, and many of them being uh, pagan authors, there is a rampant, anti-Semitism is actually a, a misnomer because that's, a, again, an anachronism, but anti-Judaism. You know, the Jews, because they revolted and because so many people died, are not held in high esteem. Many people believe that we did not need matter of fact, many people believe that we would be better off as Christians, as believers in Jesus if we could just cut ourselves off from our Jewish roots, to sever them and move on. Uh, I actually grew up in a church that we referred to ourselves as a New Testament church, and our Bible did not have the Old Testament. Any of you, any of you ever heard of those people? Our Bible was the, Old Te- the New Testament, and what? Psalms. That's, that was the Bible. We would still use some of those stories, but the stress was that we we sort of downplayed the Jewish part of that. Uh, The revolt, again, had made uh, being Jewish popular. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. So the whole base for Judaism was gone. The Romans took care of that. The mother church in Jerusalem. The mother church in Jerusalem dominates the book of Acts, and it dominates Paul's letters. Because it's the mother church at Jerusalem that Paul struggles with. Because we have two different understandings of what it means to be Christian. The view in the mother church in Jerusalem is to be a Christian, you must be Torah observant. So you must circumcise. You must do all these kind of keep the kosher laws. Paul says, fine for Jews. But for those who are Gentiles who become believers, they are free from that law. And that's a bit controversial. Okay, and so we have a little, little going back and forth there. The original followers at this point are are they're gone. Uh, maybe the Apostle John, who tradition says lives into his 90s, could still be alive. The rest are gone. The chur- church, which was predominantly Jewish in the beginning, uh, by the way, not that many Jews ever became Christian. We were always a small minority, but. As the church at Antioch then begins to spread out into the larger world, and more and more and more Gentiles become Christian, the percentage that are Jewish, it's not that they're going away, because we know that there's there's Jewish Christians through the end of the second, maybe even into the third century. But their percentage just keeps going down, down, down. And they're pretty much limited to one place. Uh, Luke wants to affirm the continuity with our Jewish roots. Uh, He wants us to understand that it is the God of Israel who has acted in Jesus of Nazareth, so that plays a huge role. It's the Jewish God, and this, this is the key passage. It is the Jewish God who promised, remember the promise to Abraham? You will be a what to all nations? A blessing. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. That gets picked up in the book of Isaiah, you shall become a light to the nations. So both with Isaiah and with Abraham story, the idea is, is that the, the chosen people of God do not exist for themselves. They exist for the world. That's our role. And by the way, you can understand that the Christian faith picked that up in spades. <laughs> um, here's the passage from Isaiah. I will give you as a light. This is a, one of the servant songs. It's speaking to the nation of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The reason that this is so important is in the book of Acts, when the ministry of Paul is explained, it's explained in terms of this language. Word for word, it exactly pulls up. So in Acts, the calling is fulfilled not by the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel had turned more inward but the Christians then were were being turned outwards. So the mission of Paul and the mission of the church, that Gentile mission is the mission that from the perspective of Acts, I'd say also from the perspective of Paul, is what in fact fulfills the Isaiah deal. Um, So we have in the book of Acts, when we want to talk about Paul's ministry, the exact words of Isaiah, Acts 13. This is the, the big dramatic moment in the first missionary journey. Paul, and this is sort of stereotype, but Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue over and over and over, and he preaches, and they toss him out in his ear. A few believe, but the rest just sort of take Paul and go, whoosh, you know, right out. And so then, as he's been re- rejected in the synagogue, who does he turn to? The Gentiles. Uh, Paul's letters are a little bit different. For as the Lord has commanded us, saying, here it is, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? The ministry of Paul is defined as a fulfillment of this passage. In Paul's letters, he actually fulfills several Isaiah passages. Um, So the book of Acts is the story of how our faith emerged out of Judaism. By the way, would you expect that story to be bloodless or a little bloodletting? Reference the council at Jerusalem, the year 50 A.D. Kay. And a little slap down between Peter and Paul that we don't know about from Acts, but we know about it because of Galatians, where uh, Paul said some very rude things to Peter because <laughs> Peter said some very rude things to Paul. Uh, no wonder uh, Luke did not record that. Uh, we go through a series of key decisions, some fundamental changes, the result of which is Christianity, or the Jesus movement, begins the process of moving out of the Jewish matrix that we were born into. We begin as Jews. We still, by the end of Acts, still primarily identify ourselves as Jews. But we are a sect within Judaism that is clearly distinct, different, and that's growing. So much so that at Antioch, uh, as, as Luke says, that was the first time that the church there actually got a different word. We, we, they could tell that we weren't quite Jewish in the way everybody else was Jewish, so they call them followers of Christ or Christians. It was the first time that was used. So the book of Acts covers two historic periods, the shadowy 20 years before Paul's letters and that period when Paul is writing. Paul's letters... Virtually all of them are in the 50s, although they may go into the early 60s. Uh, so Luke's going to take the first 12 chapters in Acts to tell the story of the first 20 years. And again, uh, this is unique material, to Luke. We don't have this stuff anywhere else. Uh, the period when the first believers had a dual identity. And this, this is kind of interesting. Acts lets us know this right off the bat. When the book of Acts opens, where are the disciples? We have the upper room stuff, but they're in the temple. As the scene opens, they're just in the temple. What are they doing in the temple? They're praying. Who prays in the temple? Jews. You know, Muslims pray five times a day. In the first century, Jews pray three times a day. And so as, as Luke narrates the story, the, the followers of Jesus are in the temple at exactly those three times of the day doing what other Jews do. But then he lets us know that they're also gathering at people's houses to break bread. And that's not Jewish, that is. That's the early communion service. Uh, So they're doing both. They have a foot in each world. (laughs) Luke then takes 16 chapters to tell the story of the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's the Jewish apostle to the non-Jew. Seven chapters are dedicated to telling the the missionary journeys of Paul. Uh, There are two parts of this. One is, and, and Luke is real clear about this, Paul does not have three missionary journeys. Paul actually has one missionary journey where he is in charge, and he participates in the missionary journey where he's somebody else's assistant. So as we look at the first missionary journey, it is clearly Barnabas, his name always occurs first, he's in charge. And where do they go in that first missionary journey? To Barnabas's home that he's from. And somebody's asking earlier, how did Paul learn? to be the apostle that he was. Well, as, as Acts narrates this, he clearly, we well have sp- several years he spends elsewhere too, but clearly he's working with Barnabas, with the Antioch church, and he does that journey there. Now, there's a little falling out between Barnabas <coughs> and between Paul. Luke has one reason, which is, remember, John Mark, Paul's letters, it's over a different issue, but it's two sides of the same coin. And then he goes off on his own and he moves over to this Aegean basin and he will be in that for the next seven or eight (coughs) years. Luke then takes the last nine chapters to do what is sometimes called the passion of Paul. You know, we have the passion of Christ. Well, The way that Luke tells the story, the end of Jesus's life and the end of uh, Paul's life are told in kind of parallel. So there's lots of things. Uh, Luke wants us to, as Paul's life comes to an end, Luke wants us to understand that he's he's, he's basically walking the Via Dolorosa just like Jesus did. Similar types of things are happening to him. Uh, He goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's in prison, spends a couple of years on the coast, Caesarea, in prison. He then journeys to Rome, and the book uh, ends with him being imprisoned but free, paying his own room and board but being able to, f- uh, to preach freely out there. Um, most of the important things that, that develop in our faith theologically, now, when we think of theological developments, our beliefs, uh, there's, a, there's a deal in our culture, we tend to think uh, Constantine, right? The fourth century Constantine, all that stuff gets kind of worked out. The truth of the matter is, nearly every single belief that we have is there in the first 10 years. The Trinity is there. The divinity of Jesus is there. The preexistence of Jesus is there. I mean, if you, d- if you doubt any of that, just look at Philippians 2, all that. You know, he d- did not account equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, you know. Or read the last verse in Matthew, or the last verse in Second Corinthians, both of which lay out the doctrine of the Trinity. Not as fully as the fourth century, but it's there. So in the time period that we've got, all of the important stuff, is laid out, and it's going to take centuries to work it out, the implications of all that, but it's all there. It's been observed that there has been more significant changes in the first 20 centuries than there were in the next 300. Now, we get into the middle of the 4th century, and we write the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Yeah, and they're working all of that, but what are they working out? They're working out beliefs that are clearly present in Paul's letters and that Paul tells us he didn't create, he inherited it from before him. And Paul is is probably converted within two to three years of the death of Jesus. So these beliefs are there immediately. Um, For the first 20 years, we have only one source, the book of Acts, so in these first few weeks, we'll be looking at Acts and trying to understand it historically, um, but really it's one source. If we then bump it 30 years, we open up another set of sources. These are the letters of Paul. So for example, particularly Galatians 1 and 2, where Paul gets so mad, he gives them some autobiography. You know, uh, Paul has to get mad before we learn anything, but fortunately he was mad a lot. Uh, <laughs> but over in uh, Philippians, over in 2 Corinthians, over in Galatians, we have these wonderful insights that, by the way, or the same material we see in Acts, so we can combine them. We can sort of get a biotic vision on that. Um, so Paul, letters Paul and the book of Acts. Paul's letters give us uh, only glimpses. Now, Paul never sets down to write history. The wha- his, uh, his writings are what are called situational, which means something happens in the church that has to be addressed. So Paul is the volunteer fire department. Okay. He's gotta go put out the fire, you know, they're speaking in tongues, disrupting worship, all these kinds of things going on. Occasionally, he sort of broad strokes a little bit of the bigger picture, which is wonderful, but most of the time he does not do that. The book of Acts, Luke is trying to narrate the story of how things develop, That makes it utterly priceless. Um, When we turn to the book of Acts, we're dealing with some of the most fundamental questions about our faith, for example, this, and this, there are actually books written on this. How did Jesus' message of the kingdom of God become the church's message of Jesus? If we know this. It happened immediately. And it has a lot to do with the resurrection. But that's a fundamental shift because you can argue that the instant this has happened, can you stay in Judaism? Not eventually. You're, you know, the, the groundwork is laid. How did the faith of Jesus, this the same thing, just a different way of saying, become faith in Jesus? And we know that that happened immediately. How did a small, insignificant Jewish sect on the backwater of Galilee, let's face it, uh, Palestine is the edge of the Roman Empire, and Galilee is the backwater of Palestine. You know. What's the only thing that's beyond that? Well, unknown territory. Uh, the Parthians, that, it, that empire that Rome struggled with. How did it become a predominantly Gentile religion? We know that will happen. It takes a while, but it happens. How did a tiny Jewish movement, at the edge of the empire, dislodge all the alternatives and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? Now, some people today would say well, it's all Constantine's fault. Sorry, folks. That's revisionist history. It was in the sand before that. Okay significant portion of the empire was Christian pre-Constantine. And the cynics would say, Constantine backed who he knew would be the winner, (laughs) okay? Uh, If you want to get get that way about it, some people do. Uh, Acts is our only first century history. It's the only source before the fourth century. Who's the fourth century source? Do you remember? God by the name of Eusebius. Now, one of the beautiful things about Eusebius is Eusebius quotes copiously from earlier authors. He quotes from some second-century authors, from third-century authors. But how many first-century sources do we have? One, for most of this. And then, of course, Paul's letters can supplement a little bit. It's also the source of some of the greatest stories of the faith. Remember the Ascension story? Becomes a Christian holiday. That's where we'll start next week. Uh, Pentecost story. Uh, there's a lot more there than what we normally celebrate on Pentecost. Because what you're going to find in Acts is generally There's an event, and there's a speech. And the speech interprets the event. And often, we'll do the Pentecost story and not not do the speech. Remember Stephen? He's the first Christian martyr. Uh, He also, in his speech, says some things that are absolutely earth-shaking, Okay, and become things that that play out the rest of the book of Acts. Um, Paul, good old Paul as the persecutor. Now, it's real clear in the book of Acts he's the persecutor. Paul, on three different letters, confirms he tried to eradicate the Christian faith off the face of the earth. Okay? And why? And there are some hints in Paul's letters, and there's some hints in the book of Acts, um, and we want to look at those. Uh, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, If you know anything about a eunuch and if you know anything about an Ethiopian and it says he was on the way to the temple, which is a very freighted statement. Because neither uh, Ethiopian nor eunuch can enter the temple. So the conversation that happens with Philip, who is the first apostle, apostle to go outside Jerusalem, he brings the faith to Samaria it is Philip who brings the faith to Judea. He's the first guy, Pete, well, Peter does some too, but Philip is the one out there you know, bringing the faith. Remarkable story. Conversion of Paul, minus the horse. That's okay. <laughs> uh, could have been a horse. Maybe they just didn't uh, admit it. Peter and Cornelius, the story there. Uh, remarkable story. The church in Antioch. This is one of those stories that doesn't get told. Antioch. If, if, I was g- if I had a time machine, I could go back to any one place. I would go to Antioch. It wouldn't be Jerusalem. Because the things that happen at Antioch are just unbelievable. And they set the tone for what will become our faith. And that, by the way, is the home base of Paul and Barnabas. The council at Jerusalem. We are blessed. We have two versions. Paul's and Luke's. They ain't the same, okay? But they, they do probably represent two perspectives of the same event. They just were on different sides of the issue. Uh, journeys of Paul. Now, we'll get into that a little bit and sort of set the stage for that. Um, so, this, the study of Acts is exciting. Why is it also challenging? Well, it's a challenging. Uh, matter of fact, that I'm an English major, so this is not the best English. Maddeningly frustrating. That's actually a quotation from a historian, you know. When historians get a hold of the book of the Acts, they just want to bang their heads against the wall, you know, because there's some things about the book of Acts that if, if you're a historian and you want to, you know, look at the history there, it just, it, just, it just rubs you against the wall. The problem is Luke is not interested in history, at least not in the way that you and I understand history today. Uh, we want to make him a 21st century guy. He ain't. He's a first century guy and in the first century you don't write history the way we write history today. You cannot read acts like a straight out history. Now we know today that no history is objective, right? The, the big fights these days are what goes into our history books, what's left out of our history books, you know. History books used to be written from a northern European viewpoint, just ignore lots of stuff, you know, that, that's always true. Um, you can't expect him to lay the facts out and events as they happened. He doesn't care about that. That's not what Luke wants to do. This becomes clear, for example, if you compare you know, you those r- wonderful places where Luke and Paul tell the same story, and you get to compare them. For example, do you remember this famous horse story with, uh, on the road to Damascus with Paul? Okay. Now, following his conversion, Luke says very clearly, that Paul immediately goes to Jerusalem. And he gets with the other disciples. And Paul being Paul, he stirs things up, and he gets run out of town. matter of fact, the other disciples have to slip him out. They have to slip him out of Damascus first because it was so bad. Now they have to slip him out of Jerusalem. So where Paul goes, he has to slip out of town (laughs) or they kill him. Uh, Paul, in his letters, emphatically says, that what Luke says happened did not happen, emphatically. Here it is in Galatians 1. I did not go to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once to Arabia, opposite direction. Afterwards, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit, who Cephas? Peter. Peter. Paul spends 15 days with Peter. Now, why would you go to Jerusalem and spend 15 days with Peter? What's Peter know that you don't know? You knew Jesus. So this is where Paul is probably trained in the Jesus tradition. But two very different perspectives. Luke says this right into Jerusalem. Paul said, Mm-mm, didn't happen. Even when we look at the books internally, Luke is not even consistent with himself. Again, if you're a linear thinking person, historian, you like it all lined out, this, this is not good. Luke not only repeats things, he is not consistent with his different versions. This drives some people crazy. For example, he has three accounts of Paul's conversion. You would hope that he would be consistent in all three, wouldn't you? Not true. Where did Paul receive his call? Now you know, where was Paul called? Damascus. The road to Damascus, okay? That is according to the first of the three stories, which is the one that we go with. Now, according to the second story, that doesn't happen. He's in the temple when God calls him and commissions him to go to. So which is it? Or is it both? Or does it matter? You know, those kinds of things you do. In Acts, people show up and vanish without explanation. You ever heard of that guy named Apollos? In the Paul letters of Paul, we know Apollos is huge. It cor- Corinth. And Paul is undermined by Apollos. And he struggles with Apollos. And, uh, and, and he gives Apollos a lot of uh, compliments because Apollos is extremely versed in the faith. Apollos is from Egypt. He's an Egyptian Christian. Uh, but his understanding of what it means to be Christian just drives Paul crazy. So they, d- you know, they, they struggle a lot there. Even major characters simply vanish with no explanation. Now, this really gets weird. Peter. Poof gone. <laughs> that should bother you. okay? Because Peter is the big figure in the opening chapters, and then we got Peter and Paul together, and then all of a sudden we just the lens goes to Paul, and we walk. And Peter just s- exits stage left. Philip got to be one of the most remarkable people from the first generation, from what little we know. Luke puts the camera on him, and it's marvelous. And then Luke moves the camera, and Peter just, I mean, Philip A little later, we find out that uh, Philip has three daughters in Caesarea Philippi, and they're all prophetesses. Yeah. But we jump from one to the other and we fade again. Barnabas. You know, Barnabas and Paul. (coughs) Barnabas is the one who introduces Paul to the church at Jerusalem because they don't want to be anywhere near Paul because they're scared of Paul for good reason. Barnabas is the one who brings him in. Barnabas is the one who gets Paul back from Tarsus, his home, brings him to the church in Antioch, and plugs him into the ministry there. Barnabas is the one who invites Paul to go with him on the first missionary journey. Huge. And then Barnabas simply vanishes. Luke skips, omits much. He jumps over things. He's silent on some things that we would like to know. Even important things like, for example, the, the, the incident in Antioch. Um, He focuses on a limited geographic area. He focuses on a few key people. Uh, The Acts of the Apostles, by the way, is misnamed. It is the Acts of Peter and Paul, (laughs) with a little bit about Philip and a little bit about maybe a couple others. But Philip is probably not the Apostle Philip. Philip and Stephen are some of the Hellenists that get elected to the church leadership. We hear almost nothing about the other apostles, nothing about Christianity's growth in countries like Syria, which by the way is the primary place the church first grew. The Gospel of Matthew comes to us from Syria. Many of the books of the New Testament apparently come from Syria. Early Christian writings like the the Didache come to us from Syria. Uh, Syria spoke Aramaic. Lots of reasons why we want to know about Syria. What does Luke include? Goose egg, okay? Egypt. We know that Egypt, again, is one of the very early places Christianity goes. We would love to know more. Apollos shows up from Egypt. Wouldn't you like to know something about where he came from and what that church is like? Tradition says St. Mark went to Egypt. He's the patron saint, but we don't know anything. Rome. Rome is an interesting one. We have to learn from a Roman historian that there is actually a Christian community in Rome very, very early, and that all the Christians are kicked out of Rome in the year 60 because they're stirring up stuff, okay? And it's over this guy called Christus. What we're probably dealing with is that we have some early Christians in the synagogues preaching Christ, Christus, and it's not well-received by everybody, and there's a big hubba, and what does the Roman emperor do? Get rid of them all. So a couple of them wind up over in Ephesus and Corinth, and become Paul's best friends. Remember the husband and wife team? They're among the people thrown out of Rome in the year 60. Now, Luke, why couldn't you have told us some of that stuff? Well, at Paul's letters, it's all over Paul's letters, talking about that. Now, as Luke tells the story, Paul goes to Rome at the end, and I'm thinking, this is where you meet all your Christian brethren, right? No, he's greeted by the Jewish community, and there's no mention that there's even a Christian community there, because Paul... The way Luke wants to tell the story, so Jewish, where would Paul go? Of course there's Christians there. Luke makes you think that maybe it's that, that all the Christians come from Paul. Luke hushes many disputes. He airbrushes them away. Not all of them. Remember the Council of Jerusalem? You should have airbrushed that one away, you know, fussing and feuding in the church. You know. But some things just didn't happen. The incident at Antioch, which is arguably... One of the most significant events in the first hundred years of the church and the event that sets the direction we're going to go. But Luke skips it over without a word. Um, Peter and Paul, a little bit embarrassing there. Somebody said that really uh, Luke is more like a painter than a photographer. Photographer wants to get everything just accurate. Well, unless you're kind of an artist photographer. But a painter interprets. So what what is he doing? He's interpreting it through theology. We have speeches in Acts. By the way, one-third of the book of Acts is speeches, which tells you, should you skip the speeches? No, they're, they're a goldmine. They're particularly theological. Luke will put words in the mouth of his uh, characters. It's been observed that if you take a speech of Paul and you take a speech of Peter and take the names off and shuffle them, you can't tell who's who because it's not the pe- speech of Peter. It's not the speech of Paul. It's the speech of who? Luke. Okay, and Luke puts words in their mouth, you know. Um, they sound the same. and We know from history they have different views. For example, we know this in Galatians. Cephas came to Anak. I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned, you know. Peter and Paul went at each other to some degree. I think there was respect, but also great disagreement. Uh, the idea that someone would rewrite uh, what somebody would say bothers many today. But you know what? In the ancient world, it didn't bother anybody. Because, in fact, that's what they did. We're going to skip over a little bit. Uh, They would write down not only what a person said, but what they thought the writer was likely to have said. Or my favorite is, what they thought the author (laughs) should have said. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how I want somebody (laughs) telling my story. Uh, Perfect acceptable in his world. For example, you ever this guy, Thucydides? He has this wonderful insight uh, in the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War where he says this. As to the speeches which were made either before or during the war, and his writings are full of them, it was hard for me, you know, and others who report them to me to recollect. I can't remember what they said. Now, should that be a barrier? No, you know. (laughs) I've therefore put into the mouth of each speaker the sentiments proper to the occasion, (laughs) you know, expressed as I thought he would be likely to express them. While at the same time, I endeavored as nearly as I could to give the general import of what was actually said. Never <laughs> let the facts slow you down, you know. we would want to give the general tenor, and, you know, that's, that's Luke's speeches, you know, that, that's what Luke is doing. This is what authors in the ancient world did. Because sometimes what you think they said or should have said was more true than what they actually did say in terms of what you were trying to get across. Uh, so he wants to interpret, give theological significance. Um, he told you that beginning of Luke. We're going to stop here, but in your handout, uh, there's a, the last issue, which we ran out of time. Sorry for that. Uh, until fairly recently, until like 30 years ago, here's what, here was the assumption. Luke uh, acts is worthless historically. When I went to seminary in the 1970s, that's what we were taught. Acts is so theological that uh, there's nothing of really any historic or very little that you can get out of it. I will tell you that in the last since I left seminary, that has changed. Um, many, many scholars today, and the, the, the major trend is to realize that in the midst of all the theology, Luke actually has earlier material he's reworking, and there's actually a lot of historical stuff that's within there. It's not... He's not primarily wanting to write history, but, but there's good, solid history in there. So we have both of those things in there. So we will, over the, between now and Labor Day, spend about 13 weeks on Acts with a little bit of stuff woven in. You know this guy across the parking lot, Ted Campbell? Yeah. He's going to come and do a three-week series in June on church history. He's going to do early church, <coughs> medieval church, Reformation church, and then and. Uh, uh, July. Susan's going to come in and do four weeks on salvation, what that means, and we're going to weave the Book of Acts sort of through that. And I'll be in and out some, and I know you'll be in and out a lot uh, because it'll be summer. But it'll be fun. Uh, looking forward to doing this. And uh, Acts is.